0: Complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell.
1: Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz.
0: And I'm Andrew
1: Mitchell. And it's, as always, been an interesting week in technology. This week, a cryptocurrency has been going crazy. It's just been shooting through the roof because of that new Bitcoin EFT that was released. And if we get a chance to get to it, I'm going to talk about all things crypto. This week, we're also going to give you a little bit of trivia of the week. What is the oldest verified computer program? That'll be interesting, and I'll give you a hint. It's run by the government. And, of course, we are going to also discuss a profile in IT. I'm going to talk about the father of virtual reality, Jaron Lanier. He is an extremely interesting guy. He's a computer scientist and a humanist. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Arnie's one of our regular listeners. He used to listen out here and uh, locally, and then he moved to Colorado. Hi, Dr. Shirts. NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are a relatively new way of ownership, uh, from what I've read. Uh, they're tokens that, you know, track collectibles. Now, what I want to understand is, uh, you know, how, how do they work? I mean, how, how do you attach something to, a, to an NFT? And uh, how can they be controlled by a blockchain? Who owns the blockchain? How can you be sure that they're not stolen, copied, or plagiarized? Uh, I really don't understand this whole NFT business. Could you enlighten us? Well, Arnie, that was a great question because NFTs have been the rage. People are selling digital assets recently and, they're, um, and they are um, authenticated with NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Now, the idea of a non-fungible token has been around for millennia uh, in, in the art world. It used to be when we were dealing with paper only, they had certificates of authenticity. So there would be... A piece of art and then the artist would sell it to a collector and then associated with that piece of artwork the artist would have a certificate of authenticity yes I sold this piece of art as I created the art and he would and it would go with the piece of art and then that piece of art would then be sold to someone else and then the certificate of authenticity would be transferred to the next person uh, then over time Dealers would appraise art, and then a dealer might give a certificate of authenticity based on their appraisal. So we've had certificate of authenticities tagged with art for a long time. If you take a certificate of authenticity and make it digital and put it on the internet, it becomes a non-fungible token. Non-fungible means it can't be altered. Non-fungible tokens cannot be altered. And the thing about a non-fungible token, it's recorded in a blockchain, which is a distributed database that's public. And every time that non-fungible token is transferred to another owner, that transfer is recorded in the blockchain. And that transfer is immutable. So if you have a non-fungible token, suppose you're the fifth owner, you can go back to the blockchain and you can prove that that blockchain goes all the way back to the original artist. So NFTs are actually superior to certificates of authenticity because you can track the transfer of ownership. Now in the art world, that's called provenance. So you can track the provenance very easily. Now what people have done with NFTs, they've, They've sold, uh, you know, like the first tweet. <laughs> they, 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 uh, the first tweet was sold. An NFT was uh, created for the first tweet, and, uh, and uh, it was sold. And that NFT came from the owner who created the first tweet so that you've got a, um, a track that you bought the first tweet from the actual person who made the first tweet. So these NFTs have uh, have become very very successful. Now the the question is nobody controls the blockchain, Arnie. It's public. It's public, and uh, so uh, and uh, every time a transfer is made, uh, that transfer is validated. So suppose you've got a non fungible token and you sell it. Um, It's validated that you've transferred that non-fungible token to someone else. Now, suppose that you decide to pull something sneaky and you want to sell it to somebody else. You sell the same NFT twice. So now you go and you sell your NFT to somebody else. When that second transfer is recorded in the blockchain, the validators say, wait a minute here. That's an invalid transfer and it's rejected. So the validation of the blockchain assures the buyer that the NFT has only been transferred once and hasn't been resold twice. And that's what the validators do. And the people who validate the blockchain, who validate the transfers on the blockchain, are rewarded in cryptocurrency for every time that they validate a block. They get a little payment in cryptocurrency, and that's why they're called miners. So nobody owns it. It's a completely distributed database, but it does track chain of ownership and provenance of the NFTs. Here's the question, though. From Bob just a second. Maryland, just a second, Doc. Dear, Doc and Andrew, uh-huh. you forgot to click on the link, the letter that I sent last week. Now, Bob sent me a letter, and he said, well, click on this link and uh, talk about that story. I never clicked on the link. There was something else in his letter that I responded to, but I didn't. I didn't click on the link. Uh, he was talking about a clipboard stealer module that uh, that people are using. Um, now, uh, it's 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 actually an interesting idea, Bob. I, I talked about this uh, probably uh, about five six weeks ago, but this was a way that people were actually stealing money from hackers. It was was, was kind of interesting. What they do is that it's malware that's loaded on the computer and it sits there and watches your clipboard. You know, your clipboard when you want to copy-paste a number or a document. And so it watches the clipboard and if you copy the address of a cryptocurrency wallet which has a particular format, If you copy the address of a cryptocurrency wallet, it comes alive. And it then substitutes another cryptocurrency address into the clipboard. So when the person then pastes that wallet address into their wallet, because they want to pay somebody crypto, they're transferring it to the wrong wallet because another wallet has been substituted in there. So this was a very clever way to steal currency. And actually it was working. I know I, I, I had to send some uh, cryptocurrency and I'm telling you, it's a very complicated uh, number sequence. And to tell you the truth, I just copied it in the clipboard and I did a copy paste. It's the easiest way to do it. So, But if you've got this particular malware installed, uh, uh, you've got problems because you're, sent, you're, you're then putting in the wrong wallet address. It's the wallet address put in by the malware owner. And once the currency's transferred to that other wallet, you can't get it back. No way to get it back. So it turns out the guy that came up with this uh, clipboard stealer modules made about $24 million so far. I mean, it's a clever way to make money. And uh, I should have covered that last week, Bob, but uh, you know, I forgot to clip. I forgot to. I forgot to click on the uh, the the link. We got an email from Leslie in Oakton. Dear Tech Talk, I'm considering buying a new mobile phone this year. I'm actually quite happy with my two-year-old 4 4G phone. That's the uh, 4G cellular network phone, and I love its camera, but. But now the 5G networks are out, and I just wonder whether I should upgrade or not. What's the, um, what's, uh, what do you recommend? Enjoy the podcast, Leslie in Oakton. Well, Leslie, every top-end uh, cell phone now supports 5G, fifth-generation cellular. Even, even the iPhone supports 5G now. Now, the question is, should you upgrade? Well, it depends. It depends on what carrier you have. Now it turns out that T-Mobile's been really been working on their 5G network. The f- the 5G network basically has you've got the low frequency bands, you've got the mid frequency bands that are that are below uh, six gigahertz. They call them the sub six bands, and then you got the mili- millimeter wave bands. Uh, the reason that 5G has more um, bandwidth, more uh, um, download speed and upload speed, is that they have more bandwidth. What the what the FCC did, they just sort of gathered up all these leftover bits of of frequency space, of and they sort of put them all together, and it made them available to the to, to the uh, to the cellular companies. And so there are a lot of frequencies that are being put into into five G, and five G just operates over all of these frequency bands. So it turned out that um, the the millimeter wave bands, the high frequency bands, uh uh, do give you a lot of bandwidth. But the problem is they, um, they're they they're shorter range and they don't penetrate walls that well. So in the cities, the, the the millimeter wave bands don't work that well. But if you go out in the country, they work great because you don't have a bunch of walls. Uh, the the, the mid-bands, which is what they call the sub-six, the ones that are below six gigahertz, they're, they're around, I mean, most of them are between 2.5 and 3.5 gigahertz. Those bands... Um, uh, penetrate walls a little better and and the, and that's where most of the bandwidth is because you because you got a lot of frequencies there and you have got a lot of bandwidth so the real speed boost is going to come from the mid bands now the lower bands are the ones that that that, that 4G are on so the lower the, the lower frequency bands 4G is on they penetrate walls better so what happened was that AT&T and Verizon deployed the millimeter wave bands which really aren't that good and uh, and they have and they just transferred some of the low frequency bands to, to the 5g protocol so their 5g network is, a, is really not much faster than the 4g because they haven't been deploying the mid frequency bands very much it turned on the other hand T-Mobile has deployed the mid frequency band so T-Mobile actually has the has the fastest 5g network now AT and T and Verizon are deploying the mid-frequency bands at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. So by mid 2022, the Verizon uh, network and the and the AT and T network should be fully built out, and you'll get a, a, a real uh, significant speed boost. So, like I said, it depends. If you're T-Mobile, you you could go right now and you'd see a, you'd see a tremendous speed boost. Now, the reason that these are only on the uh, premium phones is the chip shortage. There aren't enough, uh, there aren't enough, uh, radio chips out there, you know, cellular chips out there made by Qualcomm and others, uh, to, to supply the demand. we get this huge chip shortage so they can get enough chips for the premium, uh, which means the expensive phones, but the cheaper phones really don't have it yet. So, um, in my judgment, uh, you know, protocols get better over time. You know, they'll do upgrades. I would think the time to upgrade to the 5G might be the middle of 2022. I probably wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it right now. And and actually, I I, I don't know if I would necessarily worry about 5G. Uh, you're you're getting a faster download speed. But unless you're playing game, uh, 5G has low latency, high speed. Now, if you're a gamer, I think it might make a big, uh, big impact for you. If you want to watch a lot of movies on your phone, but if you're just surfing the web and doing email, 4G is going to be perfectly good enough. I, t- I tend to upgrade my phone, I hate to admit it, for the camera. I don't upgrade it for the 5G connection or faster download speed. I just love a better camera. So when there's a better camera out there, I pretty much go for it. I hope that answers your question, Leslie. It was a little bit complicated because 5G is a little bit complicated. I'm telling you, these vendors are are not very transparent. They make it really complicated to figure out who's on first with 5G. We got an email from Karen in Virginia Beach. Dear Tech Talk. I'm always losing my key fob to my car in the house. now is, can I have got a tracker so you know I lose it I, I can find it what, what can I do? Well, uh, I've been looking for my for my fob for the last several weeks. So I can't find it. Now I'm using my second key fob, but I want to find that first is first key fobs or any way I can get it well, Karen, if you don't have a tracker on your key fob, it's going to be really hard to find. Uh, now, now, if you are really technical, you may be able to find it. It turns out that key fobs transmit at 315 megahertz. That's the frequency they transmit at. But they only transmit if they're interrogated. So, like, if you bring your key fob close to the car, you have you ever noticed how the lights turn on? The, the car communicates to the key fob, and then the key fob, Transmits back, so the the car sends out a little interrogating signal and it it talks to the key fob. So if you could find a way uh, to interrogate the key fob, some way to transmit 315 megahertz, and if you had a frequency scanner that was detecting 315 uh, megahertz signal, maybe a little directional antenna. You might be able to go down, go around, and you might be able to find your key fob, activate the key fob, and try to, and try to detect a response. I think that's going to be pretty difficult to do, though, and I'm suspecting, uh, Karen, that you're not really going to be wanting to get all that equipment. Uh, so I think it's going to be very hard for you to find your current key fob unless you just physically find it. However... Once you do find that key fob, you ought to put a tracker on it, and you could just clip a tracker on it. And the nice thing about these trackers, they uh, they are activated by Bluetooth, so you can track them with your cell phone. <clears throat> so there are three trackers that are that are pretty good, and they're all about thirty bucks. Um, you could get Tile Pro. Now the Tile Pro, that's um, that that that's probably the best key finder, no matter what what cell phone you've got. It's easy. It's easy. It's nice. It's a nice way to keep track of easy to lose items. Now the um, now the tile pro you'll detect the tile pro up to 400 feet. I mean, that's amazing. That's an amazing range. And so it's uh, it's so sensitive that with that 400 foot range, uh, I mean, I assume that you don't have, uh, you know, concrete walls between you and the tile pro at 400 feet. Uh, but that's a very good one. It's got long-range detection. <coughs> it uses Bluetooth to connect with it, and that's around $35. Now, if you've got a smart, a Samsung Galaxy phone, you might want to get the Galaxy Smart Tag. Uh, that's also got a long range. It matches the tile pros range. But, and if you've got that cell phone, that, the way it's integrated to the, to the operating system, it's pretty good. That, that unit's only $24. Now, if you've got an iPhone, you might want to get the Apple air tag. Now the Apple AirTag, uh, you know, connects over Bluetooth and, uh, and, and you can use your built-in find my app, uh, find my, uh, you know, find my app find my phone It'll be find my, uh, find my air tag. And, uh, and it will, it will locate it for you. In addition, if you've got an iPhone 11 or later, which has ultra wide, it has the ultra wide band chip, it sends out a signal and it really gives you a, like a direction as you're walking around the house, looking for the unit. So uh, the air tag for iPhone users is pretty good. That's all. That's only $29. And so, uh, Sorry, I can't help you find your unit now, but uh, if you find it, uh, you, get a, you get a tracking tag and you'll be, you'll be good to go. We got an email from Sheru in New Delhi. Dear Tech Talk, that's New Delhi, India. Uh, after using Windows computers for years, I decided to try a Mac on my Acer laptop. Now, uh, I'm using on the Mac, I'm using the Safari browser, of course. That's the, the Apple browser. But I don't like it because it does not display the full URL, the full web address, URL, that's the web address. And before I go to a website, you know, if I click on something, I I want to know where it's sending me. Is is there any way that I can get Safari to display the full web address? Well, Cheryl, to tell you the truth, I like the full web address too because, I, you know, before I go to someplace, I want to know that it's not, you know, not a... Uh, not a nefarious website that they're sending me to. So you, you can easily display the full, uh, full web address on Safari. What you want to do, you, you open up Safari, then, then from the, uh, then under, then once you've opened up Safari, click on preferences and then under preferences, click on the advanced tab and then, uh, under the Advanced tab, you'll see a little box, and beside it it says Show Full Website Address. Just click on that line where it says Show Full Website Address, and uh, and then uh, then at that point, from that point on, Safari will display the full website address. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at at Stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: Yeah, and stick around because we're about to meet one of the pioneers of virtual reality but there's so much more to his story. Profiles in IT next on Tech Talk.
2: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio presented by Stratford University coming up in a moment.
1: Lanier. Jaron Lanier is a computer scientist, a visual artist, a composer, and also the founder of the field of virtual reality. Jaron was born May 3rd, 1960 in New York city, but he was raised in Mesilla, New Mexico. His mom, a Holocaust survivor, uh, was the breadwinner of the family. She was an artist. She was a concert pianist. She was a dancer. She also made money day trading. She was the breadwinner for the family. Uh, His father's family also survived the Holocaust. In fact, Lanier, Lanier was one of the Ellis Island names. They changed their name when they came into Ellis Island because they did not want to appear Jewish. So they changed it to Lanier. Uh, when his mother, when, when Jaron was nine, this was after they'd moved to New Mexico, his mother was killed in a car accident. It was tragic for Jaron. He was close to his mom. After his mother's death, Jaron had a succession of infections, including scarlet fever and pneumonia. He was in the hospital for a year, uh, and, and this was really probably, you know, all related to his mom's death, his his feelings of despair during the time that he was in the hospital his house in el paso burnt down so when he got out of the hospital he went back home his father was unemployed grieving and penniless his father was not the breadwinner his father was just had lost everything he did have a little bit of money left so he said let's just get out of town he bought a small parcel of uninhabited land in the middle of the New Mexico desert. I guess that's all they could afford. Uh, Jaron and his dad lived in tents out in the forest, out in the desert. Uh, And they just survived. It was basically a subsistence uh, operation there for a while. Uh, And Jared, uh, while they were out there in the desert, Jared designed a new home. They managed to assemble a bunch of, you know, scrap parts to put it together. So he designed a home that he and his father built.
0: But at age hand. 12, at age 12, imagine that.
1: Yeah, at age 12. And it was, a, it was a geodesic dome. I mean, the main living area was a geodesic dome. Can you imagine? I mean, the guy's, he, he's 12 years old. There's He's living in tents out in the desert. And, uh, and he's designing this geodesic dome. Now, his dad, as it turned out, by training, was an architect, too. But he, apparently, he he wasn't a very good businessman because he, he didn't have any architectural business. So uh, that's probably why Jared was interested in geodesic dome. So he let Jared design the whole house at age 12, and they built it. And that's where they lived. And that became quite a... Uh, Quite a tourist attraction out there in that part of uh, New Mexico. Now he, uh, Jared, you know, he he's he was very precocious. He wasn't really into you know chasing degrees, but he went to uh, he he went he talked to some professors at New Mexico State University. He convinced them to let him enroll. He said, "Look, I I I I'm interested in mathematics. He'd been he'd been sort of teaching himself mathematics on his own." He was, he was very good at mathematics, actually. So, um, so they let him enroll in, uh, in graduate school at age 13. And he took graduate-level classes at, the, uh, at, at New Mexico State University. And uh, then while he was at New Mexico State taking his graduate classes, he decided to apply for a grant from the National Science Foundation, NSF, and he applied for a grant to NSF to actually develop a new form of mathematical notation that would make solving problems easier. So he got a grant from NSF while he was taking graduate courses at New Mexico State when he was only 13. And uh, But in order to uh, develop this uh, work on this grant on mathematical notation, he had to program the computer. So he taught himself computer programming. Now... Now, this was back in the early, this was back 1979, 1980, this was before the personal computer was out. So, you know, anybody that could program a computer was really at the, uh, you know, at the top top of the game, because there weren't very many computer programmers out then. Now, from 1979 to 1980, his uh, NSF-funded project focused on digital graphical simulations for learning. Digital Graphical Simulations for Learning. Like he was interested, say, in teaching uh, anatomy and physiology by actually creating an environment where he could walk through the body and look at the body parts. That, that would be an idea. That would be, uh, that would be Digital Graphical Simulations for Learning. That might be an application of that. Uh, he, uh, and this project that he worked on between 79 and 80 is what sparked his interest in virtual reality because he he could actually walk inside of a, of, a, of the anatomy of a person it was like he was in a virtual virtual universe there looking around at all the uh, all the uh, organs now but he was a, he was somebody who was still searching for who he was so one day he was there out in the desert there with by his geodesic house a geodesic dome house, and he met this uh, hippie. Now the hippie had a goatee and a van. Okay, yeah, every hippie has a van. And he, and this this guy told him. He says, "Look, I go to art school, uh, and I hang out with artists and poets." And uh, and Jaron said, "Wow, that sounds like fun." Now now this guy was uh, was going to art school at Bard College in upstate New York, kind of an elitist school out there. So, so Jaron said, "Well, look, I'm just going to go out there, to, and I'm going to enroll in Bard College. That sounds like fun." So he just he just rode across the country with this guy in his van. He enrolled in Bard College. Now, he it turns out he did, he uh, you know he he didn't really have much money. He he earned money. He he earned money for his tuition by keeping goats and selling milk and cheese. If you can imagine. Uh, now. He started going to Bard College and, uh, while he liked this guy with the goatee, it was elitist school and everybody there was rich and, you know, full of themselves. He, he, he couldn't stand it. He dropped out without him. He didn't even finish his freshman year. He, He dropped out of Bard College and then he went to New York city, uh, and he eked out a living as a musician. He kind of liked music was his second passion. So he eked out a living as a musician, but but then he he eventually said, I think I'm going to go back home. So he went back to New Mexico, and he started organizing protests in New Mexico against the expanding nuclear power industry in the state. He got into this whole protest movement. But after a few months of protesting, he said, you know, this protesting, this activism doesn't pay much, and he did need money. So he reactivated his goat herd. He started selling milk and uh, cheese from his goats, but he still wasn't earning enough income to survive. So then he got work as an assistant midwife, uh, helping indigent Mexican farm workers deliver their babies. So he's a goat herder and a midwife. This guy is all over the place. Uh, and, the, and, and, and by the way, he's all, he's
0: only twenty years old at this point in the story.
1: Yeah, he's, he's done all this living, all this point. stuff, and, and he's about twenty years old. Can you imagine this guy? This guy is just—he's trying to find himself. Actually, he's extremely bright. He can do anything he wants. He just doesn't know what he wants to do. Now, he delivered one baby, uh, and the mother was a schizophrenic, and the father was in jail. So the so he kept the baby. Uh, took care of the baby, so he was programming with one hand and holding the baby with the other hand for about three months, till the, till the father got out of uh, out of jail, and then he gave he, he he gave the father the baby, and the father was so thankful that Jaron had taken care of the baby that he gave him this old beat up jalopy. I mean, there you know the floorboard had a hole in it; you could see the road going underneath it. So Jaron, for the first time in his life, had a car. So. He said, you know, I know how to program computers. Uh, I'm just going to go out to Silicon Valley. So he hopped in his car, and he drove very slowly because he didn't want to get arrested in this old jalopy. And he drove out to Silicon Valley from New Mexico. Now, of course, that was the epicenter of computer startups. There was a, an extreme shortage of computer programmers. And Jared knew how to program computers because he had done it there at New Mexico State on his uh, on his NSF project. So he started programming for these startups, and he made a boatload of money. He was he was uh, really happy with it. He was making a lot of money, and he he's kind of interested in games because games is sort of the intersection of art and uh, computer programming. So he created in 1982. He created a game for Atari called Alien Garden. He, he, he programmed this with Bernie McCowan.
0: Now, Doc, uh, I got to ask you this: You were an Atari guy. Did you ever play Alien Garden?
1: I never played Alien Garden. I never even no. heard of it. No, I've never. I never even heard of it either. I, uh, you know, my, I mean, I, I played a few games, but I never played too many Atari games. Uh, then he, then he made, a, then he wrote a game on his own uh, for the Commodore 64 called Moondust. And that apparently was a pioneering game. It was graphically complex, and and he made good money on MoonDust. But uh, so he was making money there, uh, you know, compute writing games, uh, you know, writing software for these startups. But he still had the dream of virtual reality. Remember back when he was doing when he got the idea of virtual worlds when he was using simulated digital images for teaching. So he started setting up a virtual reality lab in his garage and started tinkering with electronics. And it slowly began to take form. Now the first, he joined forces with a fellow Atari programmer, Thomas Zimmerman. Now Zimmerman had designed a virtual reality glove as an input device. This is a glove that you could sort of flex the fingers, it would detect what you were doing with your fingers. And you could put these gloves on and then you'd use that as a virtual reality input device so so they started uh so they took zimmerman's glove as the as the um, sort of the first piece of electronics that they would have in their vr lab and then they built a um a a um a virtual reality uh goggle you know set of goggles uh they they they, they developed a uh, head mounted display it took them three years they developed a head mounted display and, of course, then you had the VR glove, you had the head-mounted display, so you could immerse yourself in a virtual reality world. Now, in addition to that, they developed a data suit. Now, this was a full-body garment that was capable of sensing movements of the arms, the legs, the torso, the feet. So that's, they sort of took the, um, the data glove, and they just applied it to the whole body. So you could actually move your body, and, and then you'd see yourself moving in a virtual world. During that time, Lanier coined the phrase virtual reality. Now what he, what he wanted to do, he felt that if you could really interact with the virtual world like this, it would make computers more human. It was a better compu- computer human interface. And he thought we want to, he wanted to make computers more human. Now. This was groundbreaking stuff. So in 1984, a scientific American came out, and they want to do an article on his VR, all of his VR stuff. They showed him the, you know, the data suit, the, the, you know, the, the hand, the data hand, they showed him the, uh, the goggles, the head-mounted display, they showed him the data suit. These guys were impressed. So they were writing this big article about it, but there was a rule in, uh, at, uh, at at Scientific American, if if they were going to feature you in an article, you had to put who you represented. So they said, "Well, um, uh, Jaron, what what university are you working for?" And 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 Jaron said, "Well, I'm not working for a university." He said, "Well, what company are you working for?" He said, "Well, I'm not working for a company. I'm just doing it on on my own in the garage." Well, they could not publish the article unless you represented a company. So he and um, and Zimmerman, his buddy, they said, "Okay." They just made up a name. They said, Well, actually, we're doing it for VPL Research. They just made up the name and they just went down and incorporated the company, uh, uh, VPL Research. And, uh, you know, VPL could stand for Virtual Programming Language. They just made it up. Later on, they said, Well, that's what it meant. So the article went in Scientific American that they worked for VPL Research. The next Week, Hundreds of people wanted to invest money in VPL research. They got all these investors that wanted to invest in this groundbreaking research. So they, they started selling um, virtual reality equipment around the world. Now, if you'd get a full VR system, this would be with the data suit, the glove, the goggles and the pro the the computer programming it would be $225,000. Now at its height, VPL Research had annual sales around $6 million. So, he had really created an entirely new business area, you know, virtual reality.
0: Yeah, and and this wasn't for uh, entertainment or video games. This was for research purposes, ver- various research
1: projects. That's right. He was just he wasn't trying to make money or anything. Now, now, the thing is, he didn't pay much money to, he didn't, he didn't pay, he was not a businessman. He didn't pay, he really didn't worry about business that much. Uh, so at one point, they, they needed to, to get a loan, to expand, to get more equipment. So he used his patents in virtual reality as collateral against the loan. Bad mistake, big mistake. Then in the early 90s, VPL filed for bankruptcy. This was in the big dot com crash. And eventually he lost all of his patents in a legal battle, lost everything. Uh, At age 32, Lanier was ousted from VPL because somebody else took it over, and he was abandoned without any payoff or patents. In 1999, Sun Microsystems bought VPL's virtual reality and graphical-related patents, and Lanier ended up with an empty bag. That's when he started pursuing his second love, music, music. He loved contemporary classical music. He was a pianist. Now he was a specialist in non-Western musical instruments. Um, He had like 40 or 50 of these ancient instruments from Asia and all over the world that he loved to play them. He wrote orchestral music and concertos using these instruments. He, He created in 1994 a contemporary album called Instruments of Change, where he was like featuring different ones of these different instruments in different songs, and he would play them himself. Now, it was a Western exploration of Asian musical traditions. It included the bowed harp, musical patterns drawn from India and the Far East.
0: So let's hear what that uh, sounds like, because we actually have a sample uh, from okay. from that album. It was a, a track called Circular Saw, and he is actually using the medieval bowed harp. And you think if you listen, you kind of pick up on the patterns that we're talking about from India or the Far East. So the it does sound, you know, it's, it has this sort of um, oriental sort of sound to it. And uh, that is one instrument, that medieval boat harp. That this whole track is just that one instrument.
1: Yeah, this, uh, I mean, he, he played with Yoko Ono. He was, he was playing uh, around the world uh, using, uh, using his instruments. Now, he had a band called the Chromatophoria. Chromatophoria. Now, they played both virtual instruments and real instruments. Now, now a virtual instrument, remember, you had the data hand? So he'd put these data hands on, and he could, like, play the air guitar. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this, so he would get up there, he'd play a virtual instrument for a while, then he'd flip over to one of these real instruments and play that. And, uh, and he was uh, really quite big in the whole music area.
0: And think about nah. this. It's not just a, you know, he has all this theoretical knowledge, like when it comes to science and stuff, but the, you know, the dexterity it takes to play any instrument and to learn all these various instruments and also instruments that no one's even heard of that he learns to play on his own. This is an incredible genius who who even has the practical skills, you know, the, the physical dexterity to carry out some of the things he wants to do.
1: So he he felt that these instruments were uh, a window into the past. So he had a harp that he believes was similar to the one that David played in the in the Old Testament. So when he plays that harp, he feels like he's going back to the time of David. And um, so he uh, he felt that probably the best com- user interface that was ever invented was the wood instrument. And that's what he loved. Now after, after working on his music for a while he flipped back to technology okay <laughs> he goes he goes back and forth it turned out that the internet 2 was coming out this was the the um, we were they, they were they were uh, they were pushing the the internet 2, the high high speed internet and they said what could we do this that would really be dramatic and they thought well maybe if we could have total immersion, we could have 3D images transferred back and forth. So he started working as lead scientist on the National Tele-Immersion Initiative. It's a coalition of research universities studying applications for Internet 2. And so he and his colleagues from Columbia created a tele-immersion experience and this was the sort of the technology that he had been developing for virtual reality since the collapse of VPL now there would be people at separate locations but by projecting light you could make it look like a 3d person was right in front of you so two people could be across the country from each other but it's like you're sitting and looking at somebody in who's right in front of you and you see their that you see their 3d image and they 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 worked on that. It took a lot of bandwidth to do that. That's why you needed internet too. And he and he worked on that uh, quite extensively to try to get make tele immersion real.
0: This is the thing, though. I don't uh, know of any you know applications nowadays. Are, are people using
1: this technology? They they're trying to use. It's just so expensive. Mm-hmm. So. They, uh, Cisco was was trying to push this tele They 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 they're trying to push it, but I think it, I think we have to wait for the cost of the technology to come down. So it is there, but only in research labs. Uh, now he was uh, from 2001 to 2004. Was visiting scientists at Silicon Graphics, where he developed uh, uh, more solutions to telepresence. Now. But he, he, he did make money. He, uh, he, you know, he sold, even though he lost all of his money in virtual, when, when, when Virtual Reality Company was, went bankrupt, he, he created another company that he sold to Google that was dealing with face recognition. He sold that to Google in 2006. Now his art, he's also an artist. His art has been displayed in galleries throughout the world. He does large-scale paintings uh, based on material from computer images, He's got a huge printer that actually has got its own chimney. Now, uh, you know, some of these paintings are, uh, prints are available uh, for collectors. Now, over time, he became disillusioned with the Silicon Valley culture. He felt that it was robbing us of our humanity. He believed we had to express our humanity in order to put computers in their place. He believed that virtual reality allowed for such an expression. So in the end... His human side was more important to him than his computer science side. And uh, we'll talk about that later in the show. In uh, 2010, he was named as Time Magazine's uh, 100 Most Influential People. Um, his net worth, by the way, is around $5 million. He's not super wealthy, but he's uh, he's done okay uh, with life. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Jared Lanier, uh, the... Uh, Father of virtual reality and maybe our preeminent computer humanist.
0: So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, because we're about to take a deeper dive into some of these thoughts of Jaron Lanier. Observations from the Faculty Lounge next on Tech Talk Radio.
2: If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it's time for observations from the faculty lounge. Let's look at uh, Jaron Lanier. He's a humanist who's actually uh, disguised as a geeky computer scientist. He actually represents the the best of both worlds, a great technologist and a great humanist. Now, he was disappointed with the exploitation of the Silicon Valley culture. I mean, he he said it started out really nice. He, He wanted to change the world with technology, but it turned out, turned into these companies like Facebook and Twitter that just make money by selling your data. It turned goodness on its head. So starting in 2000, he started writing about about his misgivings about Silicon Valley, and and he's got some very interesting opinions. Uh, Like he wrote one half a manifesto in 2000. Now, he was criticizing claims made by writers like Ray Kurzweil, Where Kurzweil believes that once we reach the singularity, computers will become ultra smart and they'll be masters of life. And he says, no, wait a minute here. Computers should be reined in by human beings. Human beings are more than computers. They can never be replaced.
0: Yeah. He actually – he gave an interview after he put out that manifesto and um, he gave an interview to Salon.com in 2000. And and he was saying in the interview that one reason he didn't think the singularity would ever happen – is that um, processing power is being outpaced – is outpacing, rather, our ability to write code. In other words, so we'll never catch up to the power that we already have. So computers will never be all that powerful because we're actually not that good at writing code. Software is bloated and slow. We're not not all that efficient. So he thinks that even though theoretically it could happen, as human beings, we're just not going to be able to keep up with the pace of technology itself.
1: That's actually a very good point. It's both hardware and software. Yeah. And the software is not scaling speed-wise like the hardware. Right. Plus, he he thinks that uh, no computer has, say, uh, consciousness. And he said any, any computer scientist that says a computer's conscious uh, can't prove it, never done it. He said it's more of a religion than a fact. Then he talked about digital Maoism, the hazards, hazards of the new online collectivism. Now, he criticized the what he calls the omni-science omni collective wisdom, like Wikipedia. Uh, he says Wikipedia is manipulated by behind-the-scenes anonymous editors, and we don't know what's behind it. Well, here's and the...
0: Th- he- yeah, go ahead, finish your sentence. I was going to...
1: And, and he said, you know... Wikipedia sort of eliminates the contributions of the individual, uh, and then makes it look like it's the collective. Yeah,
0: but the thing is, so I mean, he he thinks that you know there's a he's against a, the idea that, that Wikipedia is like a bottleneck. He doesn't like the idea of there being one bottleneck uh, for knowledge. But I feel like it's kind of not really a bottleneck here because there, is, um, there are many and they're not a group of editors. They're actually random editors out there in the world and they're forever correcting one another. So I, I, st- I still don't see it as really – If there's not one gatekeeper. There's a gatekeeping mechanism, but it's constantly being sort of taken over by random people from all over the world with different viewpoints. So I'm not, I'm not really getting his idea about Wikipedia here.
1: So what what says? What okay he says there there there've there been great collaborations in the past like he talked about say we had collaboration over quantum mechanics uh, but you and you had the scientists that collaborated on that but he said in the past these great collaborations these individuals had achieved things on their own first and then they collaborated he says now uh, you know this this collaboration, uh, you know, is just people just throw stuff out, and you don't have individuals. You don't have the individual achieving things. Uh, he gave an example of say Google Translate. You've got a lot of people that have done translations, and they've they've digitized them. Google just scooped it all up and makes it look like their engine is really bright. And they've minimized the contributions of the people that made it happen.
0: Yeah, I, that I agree with. I mean, people have actually handed over what it turns out to be sort of a digital asset, which is their knowledge, their ability, to say, to translate something. And they don't get anything for it, but Google gets all the money.
1: And musicians have done the same thing. I yeah. mean, musicians are not making any money. It's these big internet overlords that are making all the money. And it turns out the, crea- the, the creative individuals... Instead of being king of the heap, are the peasants who are filling the coffers of the internet aristocracy?
0: That is a very, very good analogy to think of it that way. Where the labor, the the value of the labor is is not does not go to the person who's been doing the work, but to the person who owns you know the That's property. Right. Yeah.
1: And so the wrong people are getting wealthy over creative content. That's his point. Yeah. And so. Um, You know, and so he, he, you know, he says, we've basically given our, to get something free, like in exchange for free service, like a free, free search engine or Facebook, we've given away all of our privacy and all of our data, which is being sold and used by the internet overlords. He said, it's a lot like the sirens of Ulysses, who were calling Ulysses, and if he goes and looks at them. He's dead. He calls them siren servers, and we're giving up something and getting back nothing in return. He said it's an imbalance that over time is going to be destructive. Uh, In the dawn of a new everything, he explains virtual reality. Now, it's interesting. He, He said that when you do virtual reality, you actually become more human. I mean, so what what he would do, like if you go into a world and you interact virtually with it, you actually have to see things from a different perspective. You actually have to... It actually gives you... It opens your eyes in terms of what you could discover. And then he said, when you come out of that virtual reality, it changes how you perceive things. So they used to do something like... They would put people in virtual reality and then when they come out of the virtual reality, they give them a flower and it's as though they've seen the flower for the first time. Because now their perception abilities have been honed. So he thinks virtual reality can make us more human. He thinks that the idea of computers replacing us like the singularity is ridiculous. And he says the only way to fight that is to project our humanity even more.
0: Yeah, I, I like that. He talked about the idea of like it, it actually helps you focus on reality rather than the virtual. Like yes. you're, you're immersed in, in virtual, and then when you come back to reality, you see it much more clearly in a whole new way. I like that that idea. Yeah,
1: it it, it changes your whole perception, and then you don't take it for granted. It it it, it it's. Uh, I mean, we we take our perception of the world, we just take it for granted, and we don't appreciate it. In virtual reality, it's like you're a child again, and you can reappreciate appreciate your, your native abilities. Now, he hates social media. I mean, he's he wrote one book, Ten Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Account. He believes that social media makes users cruder, less empathetic, and more tribal.
0: Yeah, and we're seeing that, you know, very clearly now in our society. And the idea that, too, that people become extensions of the platform rather than individual authors, and the idea that people have, um, once they sort of engage with Facebook, let's say, and they're only getting information that they like, and and, and they begin to sort of repeat tropes and memes instead of actually expressing original thoughts. So they become automated extensions of of the platform itself.
1: And then what Facebook does in their feeds... If something really irritates you and you start making a lot of comments, Facebook says, hey, get engagement, we make money on engagement. So they give you more of that stuff. And so it turns out Facebook's feed actually makes people angrier and angrier. And the Facebook feed algorithm actually is, is dividing us. It, it, it's actually ripping apart the society.
0: And it's narrowing the uh, the range of thoughts that are being expressed, That's I think. That's right. Yeah. So
1: so his message is clear. We must control the forces that are driving the internet and computer science in general, and we must focus on being more human. Listen, I, I, I didn't know much about Jaron until this week, and I, I love this guy. And he Listen, made us we, think,
0: didn't he? He made us think about things today.
1: He certainly did. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can.
0: Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.